0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcast are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our 41st Podcast in our series on the first half of American history. In the 40th podcast, we finished our discussion on the impact of slavery on the United States. We looked at the arguments for the retention of slavery, as well as what it was like to live in free society. In this 41st podcast, we're taking partially one last glance around the united states by looking at how john and jane doe were living their average american life however when i say a partial glance because some things that we'll be discussing don't necessarily impact the impending crisis on slavery called the american civil war however reading between the lines, one can see as well that seeds were also still being sown for an eventual collapse of relations between the northern and southern states within our United States of America. So in this 41st podcast, we're going to be looking at morality in America and our attempts at social reform, as well as the impact of female influence in everyday society in the pre-Civil War days of United States history. In terms of morality in America, there was this firm belief that religion can solve all societal problems. If given the chance, religion can just simply smooth away all the wrinkles in society that are causing problems in human nature. The first object that this movement in morality within United within the United States would be targeted, of course, against alcohol and alcohol consumption. You might say listening to this that wait a minute, Chris, aren't we about almost a hundred years prior, or at least several decades prior uh, to prohibition? No. But when prohibition hits, of course, as we know, in 1920s America. That's not when it started. The seeds being sown for the temperance movement are discussed in this podcast all the way going back here to the 1840s and 1850s. The temperance movement again would be against the consumption of alcohol for any type of personal enjoyment. The new focus, however, would be on the role of self-discipline. Why? Because of the high levels of drinking In the United States or American society, the levels of drinking were three times as high as they are in the 21st century. By 1830 alone, the average American 15 years and older was consuming no less than 88 bottles of alcohol on average every year. No function was without alcohol. Americans spent more money on booze than the federal government spent in an entire year within the federal budget. Now, again, as I said in these podcasts, let me, to the best of my ability, give you both sides of this issue or both sides to the coin. Clearly, what I just rattled off there clearly are arguments that, yes, alcohol consumption can be a problem. But let's also remember the time. That we're talking about chronologically whether we're in any other part of the world much less the united states remember that when it comes to beverage choice or choices of what we humans can consume there's not a whole heck of a lot of choices out there depending upon where you're listening to this podcast if you're anywhere in the western modern world where you go to a typical high-end or not even necessarily high-end restaurant but a well populated restaurants, we now have literally choices of sodas that number past 100. We can get flavored Cokes and flavored Pepsis with any sort of concoction of different flavors that can literally make our drinks unique. Even before that, the average restaurant sold how many different forms of drinks? You have your equivalent of your Dr. Peppers, your Mountain Dews, your Coke versus Pepsi, your Root Beers, your Sprite versus Seven Up versus Sunquist, any of these others. You have your orange pops, your cherry flavored pops, your ginger ale, on and on. And I'm not even getting to what they're selling in the average or typical grocery store aisle. And mind you, that's just for carbonated beverages. How about getting into our juices, our flavored waters, our other dairy products, on and on, right? Not to mention our hard liquors, our wine spirits, etc. But this, that's the 21st century. We are back again almost 100 years prior. Your beverage choice was much, much more limited. Yes, they had the dairy products. But as we know, without modern refrigeration, dairy products had a short shelf life. And there was fear of consuming dairy products. If any of you, by chance, along as, as I have, have ever suffered from food food poisoning, food that had soured, but I just didn't taste it or didn't realize it, the kind of violent forms of sickness, and I'm going to spare you the details, spare your conscience by leaving the details out of this, uh, as to how bad it got for me. But I'm telling you, any, I'm telling you right now, any day of the week. Give me the average stomach flu before you ever suffer from the uh, botulism or any form of food poisoning again. I mean, it just was literally that horrid, that wretched for me. And I find that I'm not the only one that feels that way. I've been teaching this for 20 years. I've sadly heard more examples than I care to admit about how sick some of my students got with food poisoning. Well, needless to say, before modern day refrigeration, dairy products, as we know, could sour fast. Your other options, of course, was water. Water also can be contaminated. So alcohol, for the most part, on average, was a safer drink. Because of the presence of alcohol, the presence of bacteria and other agents that could cause a human being to become sick was minimized. I didn't say eliminated, but minimized. In short, listeners, what I'm pointing out is that alcohol generally was a safer drink to consume, certainly against the major dairy products of the day, and even, of course, against uh, common water, tap water, water from a stream that can be contaminated, but in ways that we can't see and we might not even taste. However, the volume of alcohol consumption still was astounding, especially, again, when you're looking after the average, even teenagers, consuming vast amounts of alcohol. So this led, within our discussion here about moral movements within American society, that led to the forming of the American Temperance Society in 1826 in Boston, Massachusetts. To say that it garnered recognition and members is an understatement that literally within seven years of the first meeting of the American Temperance Society, they had opened up 5,000 chapters throughout the United States, encompassing uh, more than 1 million members. By 1845, with a push to minimize the consumption of alcohol to teach individuals the importance of boiling water of homogenizing it to the best we can in the pre-days the days predate the homogenizing our dairy products that alcohol consumption by 1845 just 19 years after its founding had dropped drastically to 2.1 gallons per person per year, again, on average. Now, you might say, okay, wait a minute, that is a considerable achievement. Of course it is. So can you understand the direction here? Can you see the foreshadowing that if this type of human organization can drastically reduce alcohol consumption, couldn't those same efforts eliminate the institution of slavery? But therein lies the problem with that word that I used. The American Temperance Society did not eliminate alcohol consumption. It significantly reduced it. Slavery is an either or proposition. We're either going to have slavery or we're not. You can't minimize it. Minimizing it still means it's legal. Minimizing it still means anybody can do it anywhere within the United States, depending upon where you're at in terms of the Missouri Compromise. And again, if you're living in an area that slavery is not allowed, well, it's simply cross that line going south, and boom, you now can possess humans to do your work for little or no pay. Because of this, the thought initially. Was that, yes, the American Temperance Society, if we could p- apply that to slavery, might it work? But again, we can see before those efforts even begin that there's a huge difference between the institution of slavery and alcohol consumption in America. So then it begs the question, Were there was there any opposition to the American temperance movement? Absolutely, there was. And ironically enough, it even wasn't from homegrown Americans. It was from Immigrants coming over specifically from Europe that were looking to make a buck on America's vast appetite for alcohol. Germans specifically attempted, German immigrants attempted to counter these successes. Consider that in 1850, there were 36 million gallons of beer produced by Germans such as Schlitz and Pabst. Ten years later, over 550 million gallons of beer would be produced. You might say, wait a minute, then, isn't that running in the exact opposite of where the American Temperance Society was? No. It shows the effectiveness of German beer advertising, as well as, of course, the effect of the American Temperance Society. So can you imagine where the German Germans were coming from? Yeah, 550 million gallons in a 10-year period. That's a massive increase. But what was the potential for even more had this blasted American Temperance Society not existed? So one might argue that the Temperance Society actually surfaced at perhaps the right time, because with Pabst and Schlitz trying to push as much beer as they could, by 1860, new banners were coming in under names such as Miller and Bush. So again, you saw, we it, witness here, the pushed by both groups, one to allow more alcohol consumption with German immigrants, as well as, of course, the ability to try to uh, uh, pull in or retain alcohol consumption by the American Temperance Society. So these two forces were working in opposition with one another. However, as we can see, just based on the numbers, the Temperance Society and the German beer industry in America both truly were gaining ground. So let's look then in terms of morality in America with the American Temperance Society. Let's again juxtapose that in terms of social reform as well. And where we see the impact of social reform most pointedly is in the American school system. Standardized schools, as Americans are familiar with that today, was essentially non-existent at the turn of the 1800s. As a result, despite the fact that America had more printing presses per square mile than any other country in the world, it was relatively ironic that we also had the highest rates of illiteracy compared to our counterparts elsewhere in the world. At its highest in the Eurasian continent would be a population with a 15% or lower illiteracy rate. However, that would be as the 1800s wore on, illiteracy in Europe was drastically dropping and dropping fast into the single digits. But that wasn't the case initially in America in the 1800s, where our illiteracy rate was skyrocketing to over 20% of the population. Those numbers are pulled from the National Center for Education Statistics. So please note again, as I say, the idea of illiteracy, this is part of the reason why there would be a push or a movement for a tax supported standardized schooling for all classes of people. Where would this notion have come from, though, that taxpayers collectively will be paying for the education of the masses? Well, it's spearheaded by an individual by the name of Horace Mann, his last name M-A-N-N, who established the state, uh, first state board of education in Massachusetts in 1837. Mann by himself didn't come up with this idea of the tax-based system to educate the masses. Rather, it was borrowed from a model that was already working for decades now in America through what we call our public library system. That idea was conceived by Benjamin Franklin. Might Americans collectively within a town or a city put a little, pull a little bit out of their pockets in order to collectively amass funds to create a building, to have it or establish a building, which could house books on all sorts of subjects, periodicals, eventually magazines, etc., that the public could then come and quote unquote borrow? Yes, to the average child today, they tend to think that these libraries are free. Well, no, they're not free. They're still being paid for in the same model that Benjamin Franklin envisioned and established in his hometown. And then the idea spread from there. So man's thinking was Horace Mann's thinking was, hey, if that can work for a library system, why not have that same model on steroids work for a teacher who can draw from those books and then educate the younger population? This is what would push this notion of a centralized control of education standards. This, if for my listeners out there, for those of you that are school teachers, again, our our hats go off to you as I am what would generally be considered a public school teacher as well. Even though I am teaching at the college level, I am teaching at a community college, which is drawn from the same idea of Horace Mann, establishing that State Board of Education in 1837. But by centralizing control of education standards, he then can control who is teaching the children within the state of Massachusetts. That idea then would spread with each state having its own form of standards that it would require of all teachers. Now, for those in my college classes that are education students, in other words, students that are major in education minoring in another field. If they're going to teach in the public school system, the moment I see that their major is education, I know that they're going to be teaching K through eight, not high school. Why? Because their major is education. I am a licensed educator in the state of Illinois. So my major was education? No. My minor was education. My major was history. And it works the same way in most states. For teachers to teach K through 8, they need to know so much more about how the human mind works at those younger in those younger years that the majority of classes they take in their, towards their bachelor's degree is about and on the field of education. They then have their minor field, which in the advanced lower grades, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, they'll focus on teaching areas such as science and math or the social sciences, but notice how that changes the moment a student goes from eighth grade into high school. Now you have teachers that teach specifically math, specifically English, history, and government. You don't find, by and large, a history teacher teaching a history class, U.S. history at 8 a.m., world history at 9 a.m., math at 10 a.m., and then chemistry at 11. There's no way they don't have the background in that. They might not have more than six credit hours out of 120 credit hours or more that comprises a bachelor's degree. They might not have that literally more than three to six hours in science as a whole. In Illinois, my major was history. So I taught world and American history and American government at the high school level. Well, what about my math? I have three credit hours in math, three college credit hours of math. Science, I have six. Two geologies with labs back-to-back. That's it. Geology 150, geology 151 from Moraine Valley Community College. That's it. There is no way a school district can put me in a science classroom and expect to teach them. Well, wait a minute, you say. I remember a coach being brought from one field to teach me in another. Yep, so did I, even though I went to a private high school we tend to bend the rules when it comes to the social sciences. You can have an excellent math teacher suddenly be thrown under the, under the radar, course, because a history teacher walked out or a government teacher got sick and is out on leave and they can't get a full-time substitute. Yes, sometimes the rules are bent and you find exact science teachers or math teachers or English teachers teaching history. And it truly is a sacrilege because that's what turns off students to history because they have a teacher that doesn't know much more about the subject than those students do or will about to. And yes, I had that in my fr- my uh, junior year at Maris High School on the south side of Chicago. Horace Mann attempted to eliminate these kinds of chances of that happening. That's why having a bachelor's degree alone does not qualify somebody to become a teacher in 21st century America. They are going to have to take their standardized exam. They're going to have to go through student teaching and be graded on that. They have to jump through all of those hoops before they can have a license as an educator in a specific field or grade level in the United States. Please note, and sometimes my students are amazed when they learn this, that that is only the case in a school that is reliant on public funding to keep its doors open. A private grammar school, a religious-based grammar school or high school, they don't have to adhere to the standards based in any given state they have a lot more license or latitude to be able to grab experts in other fields to teach specific fields, say in the high schools, that the average, again, public high school would not be able to acquire. So all of that comes out and starts in the 1830s America. All right, man, Horace man, what also was driving your motivation? What was driving you To establish the standardized or centralized control of education standards. What Horace Mann also believed was that education, not just religion, could heal many of society's ills. In other words, what Mann was thinking, to put another way, is that possibly the more educated we become, isn't it possible? that the less violent we will become, that the more peaceful a society will become. Man died without ever actually getting an answer to his question. In fact, we wouldn't really get an answer to that question for well over 160 years, when finally, as exemplified in the book called As the Future Catches You, by Juan Enriquez, where he established the numbers that proved that Horace Mann was right. Education can heal many of society's ills. I didn't say eliminate, and I didn't say all, but many. In fact, Juan Enriquez in his book actually stresses that in numbers, that worldwide, that every level, every year of education, that a given society attains, their propensity for violence goes down by 3%. In other words, country A in 1980 has a 60% chance of turning towards violence to settle its issues. But by 1990, they go from a 6th grade education to a ninth ninth grade education. What Juan Enriquez was able to prove through vast amounts of research is that country A's propensity for violence would go from 60% down to 51% because they acquired three additional years that the average person had in that country of a level higher level of education. And you might say sitting there listening to this saying, okay, big whip, 3%. Yeah, that's 3% down. Would you rather have the alternative 3% up? At least it's going in the right direction. So this is how prescient of of an individual this Horace Mann really was. Finally, in terms of education in America, it would be the first profession fostering female leadership, primarily, of course, because of the nurturing roles that was perceived from females in a given society. So this is where we see social reform affecting the American school system. Let's see how it also affects criminal justice in the United States at this time. Within criminal justice, just as there, were, there were, Horace Mann was fostering a standardized way of establishing education standards in America, so too was a movement for focusing on a standard way, standardized way of working with criminals, the mentally and physically ill within a given society, separately. Now, let me go back and unpack that. If my listeners weren't, didn't quite catch me on that, I wasn't, it wasn't a slip of the tongue. Because criminal justice would be going through reform as well, there would be a focus on a standardized way of working with criminals within society, working with the mentally ill, and working with the physically ill separately now. And if your mind's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Chris, are you saying before that that they generally were all lumped together? Yeah, You got it. That's exactly what I'm saying. The idea now would be to focus on these individual groups. That a criminal doesn't automatically mean they're mentally or physically ill. Because if that's the case, then every mentally ill person is automatically a criminal. Every person with a limp or a missing limb is automatically a criminal. In order to be able to work with these populations, you have to work with them separately. However, as good as idea that sounded on paper, it would take decades for that thought to become mainstream reality. The reason being is that there would have to be a shift in mindset, from lost cause to a mindset of rehabilitation. And right as I said that, I know that I can be touching on some sensitive chords amongst my listeners because of the way I phrased that, because there are a lot of individuals still to this day in modern society throughout the world that believe that once a person has some type of mental disability, that they can never be mainstreamed into society again. And we know now that that is patently false. For all mental illnesses, no, but for a lot more than we once thought. So to unpack this briefly, how are we going to deal with the criminals? Well, first off, to set up penitentiaries for prisoner reform. Now, one might say, okay, prisoner reform, why are we focusing on that back in the 1830s and beyond? And is that still very much a, a necessary role today? Well, great question. In fact, I asked the question, how is the United States prisoner attendance record compared to that of other countries. Well, that's where I turn to Fareed Zakaria, who is a prominent journalist, author, and commentator on several news organizations throughout the world. As he wrote for Time Magazine on the April second, 2012 issue on page 18, the United States has 760 prisoners per 100,000 citizens. That's not just many more than in most other developed countries, but seven to ten times as many. Japan, per 100,000 citizen, has 63 prisoners. Germany has 90. France has 96. South Korea, for example, has 97. Britain, with the highest rate amongst the Eurasian powers, still has only 153 compared to our 760. Even developing countries that are well known for their crime problems have only a third of the number of the United States statistics. Mexico has 208 prisoners per 100,000, and Brazil has 242. As Robertson pointed out on his TV show, The 700 Club, we in America make up 5% of the world's population, but we make up 25% of the world's jailed prisoners. That is an astounding set of statistics. As a result of this too, asylums would have to be set up for the poor and the mentally ill again to be rehabilitated separate from the prisoner population, which then begs the question, with such high numbers of prisoners in the United States, does this affect any other segments of society? Absolutely it does. Most significantly, the college, st- the college student population. When you consider, as uh, Zakaria writes later on in his editorial, partly as a result, that the money United States has to spend on its prisons, states spend on prisons has risen at six times the rate of spending on higher education in the past 20 years. In 2011, in the state of California alone, spent $9.6 billion on prisons versus $5.7 billion on the University of California school system and state colleges. Since 1980, California has built one college campus brand new, but also built 21 prisons. A college student costs the state $8,667 a year to educate. A prisoner costs $45,006 a year to keep in the house of many doors. These are statistics considerable numbers. So then moving along from here, what did I mean when I said earlier that it would take a long time for these reforms to become standardized. This is what I mean by that. You can pause the podcast now after I ask you to Google the name of a Supreme Court case that I would like you to take four minutes of your time to listen to. The name of this court case, the Supreme Court case, was called Buck versus Bell. So it's B-U-C-K versus Bell, common spelling B-E-L-L. And the specific summary of this court case that I would like you to listen to was called Fixed to Fail. And again, it's roughly four minutes. That Supreme Court case summary, even without the summary, the actual case itself just goes to show you what I mean when I say how long it would take for Dorothea Dix and how many pioneers trying to work with a mentally handicapped to prove to society that not all people that have issues mentally and physically are to be castaways in society, that they can be educated, that they can learn, that they can be productive citizens. Nobody drives home a point uh, more than this, than teacher Ann Sullivan with Helen Keller. Here goes a woman, Helen Keller, who is blind and deaf, and therefore as a result, mute, whose mom and dad pretty much had had it with trying to work with her, was attempting to put her into an asylum when Ann Sullivan said, no, no, Helen can be taught how they they protested. She can't see, she can't hear, but those aren't the only senses. She can smell, she can feel as well, correct? You can use those senses in order to educate, in order to get her to read that these bumps that she's feeling with her fingertips mean, put an apple next to her nose. The A-P-P-L-E, apple. Let her smell it. Let her taste it. That's a positive reinforcement. When, as she was known to not like something out of frustration to pick it up and throw it, she could feel a negative sensation, discomfort, pain. That's not the way we do things. You can still channel a human being's ability to learn. and Sullivan proved that by Helen Keller, who just another 10 years before her time could have been considered a permanent castaway in society, who would turn around and become educated to the point of being literate, knowing again, not only how to read, but how to talk, how to play the piano, play for a performance? How did she know the, perf- the, the the audience approved of what she played? Because the audience clapping she could feel the vibration through the floor through her feet as Ann Sullivan taught her how to do. She obtained a boatload of degrees and I'm not just talking about honorary degrees, degrees that she actually earned right So that's just an extreme case of what we can do with the human being yet yet that would not be enough. For still some of the quote unquote educated in American society to realize that, hey, progress can be made. And Buck versus Bell, that case that hit the United States Supreme Court in the late 1920s, proved that. Carrie Buck was suing an institution that she was born into. There was an institution, an asylum for the mentally handicapped. Why was Carrie Buck? born in this institution because her mother was. Why was her mother born in that institution? Because her grandmother was brought in there by her parents. Her grandmother, yes, had an undiagnosed mental handicap that her parents could not deal with, so they put her in the institution. That grandmother got pregnant and gave birth to Carrie's mother, who lived her entire life in this institution in Virginia. That institution, in that institution, Carrie's mother gave birth to Carrie. As Carrie turned of age when she started having her monthly period, against her will, she was sterilized. However, it was done at a time when the likes of those pioneers working on the behalf of the mentally handicapped was able to put together measures and instruments that Carrie Buck could prove that she was and could be a productive citizen in society, and she earned her right to walk out of that institution on her own two feet and attempt to integrate into society. It was only then that she learned that she had the surgery to make her sterile against her will, and she sued the institution. The institution won in the lower courts. The institution won in the upper courts. Her lawyers, willing to work pro bono, said this has got to be an open-shut case against human rights, against your rights. Surely the Supreme Court will take this case, and they did. And the Supreme Court case heard that. The Supreme Court, excuse me, heard that case. And they, in a majority, ruled in favor of the institution. One of the greatest legal minds of the United States Supreme Court justices throughout its entire history is none other than Oliver Wendell Holmes, somebody that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. But here is where Holmes dropped the ball significantly. When he wrote, more or less, Carrie, we're sorry that you're sterile. We're sorry that you can't have children. But you have to understand where society, where the institution was coming from. Your grandmother gave birth to your mother. Your mother gave birth to you. When you were born, they thought automatically you had the same mental disease or illness that your mother and grandmother had without testing, without confirming. They didn't have the instruments to test in those days in their defense. But Carrie, you have to understand where we're coming from. That's essentially summarizing what Oliver Wendell Holmes was trying to articulate in defending the court's position to rule in favor of the institution. Why didn't he stop there, though? And this is where, again, as I say, is my proof that truly it would take decades for a true shift in mindset. Because in his legal writing, towards the end of his opinion paper that he wrote to defend the court's position, he wrote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. In other words, Carrie the institution was doing society a favor by making sure you could not have a fourth generation of your kind in that institution that is being maintained by the taxpayers. Even though Carrie had proven herself as a viable, capable human being like anybody else around her, Oliver Wendell Holmes, in that opinion, in the court's written record, referred to her as an imbecile. A modern-day form of that word is an idiot. That's in the record. Don't believe me. Look it up. Buck versus Bell. B-U-C-K versus B-E-L-L. That's what I mean by it takes, again, three generations of mindsets, and it still doesn't change even with Oliver Wendell Holmes. And by the way, any of my listeners happen to ask the question, Why was the grandmother able to give birth to the mother? And why was the birth mother of Carrie able to give birth to Carrie? And why did they feel that they had to sterilize Carrie? Dating must have been allowed in these institutions? Of course not. They were raped repeatedly. Rather than go after the perpetrators of who are raping these young women, you simply now sterilize them. That's why this case was also known as fixed to fail. In that four-minute video, you will see the likes of Adolf Hitler, because Hitler found out about this case and further used it as his justification to create a society of racial purity. Along this line, too, needless to say, I've been foreshadowing the significant influence or increase in female influence in American society, and rightly so. The American Female Reform Society was formed during these decades as well in pre-Civil War America that attacked prostitution as a double standard and helped to make a push for the momentum for state laws that would ban adultery and prostitutions. It was no surprise as well that they also established anti-slavery chapters because in some cases, white woman could relate to the abuses of some slaves. Woman also knew what it was like to live in a mal-dominated society. And in terms of that with abolitionism and women's rights, in terms of the ideas of uh, freeing the slaves, the momentum would be built would be built upon the American Colonization Society formed in 1817. The thought would be to purchase slaves and return them to their home country somewhere in Africa. Needless to say, we can see almost the primitiveness of this, the naivety of this plan. First off, purchasing a slave by 1861 A slave will cost in 2021 dollars the equivalent of a mid-sized car, say a brand new Ford Focus as an example. So economically, this was completely unfeasible. Secondly, where is home to slaves that might have now been existing in the North American continent for almost 200 years This soil is the only home they know. But secondly, I also want to stress that even with the American colonization society that was staffed by abolitionists, Puritans, and other individual religious leaders, notice here though, the idea was not to reincorporate slaves, free slaves into American society. It was to get rid of them. To deport them, and I'm going to point this out and stress this in later podcasts as we continue this. Finally, in terms of abolitionism as well, William Lloyd Garrison would would be the co-editor of an anti-slavery newspaper called The Liberator that he launched in 1831. They uh, had two themes to it. Number one was ending slavery, which is the reason why he would be able to sell the newspaper in several areas throughout the United States. Why ultimately did it fail? because of his second theme of trying to push the notion of racial equality, that there's no difference in skin color. Even for many Northerners, that was a little bit too much to take. The American Anti-Colonial Society was also formed in 1833 by Quakers businessmen and ministers that would be helped by the women's movement as well by Elizabeth Caddy Stanton, Lucretia Mott, who formed the first national convention, the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, to try to push for equality between females and males within equality? Susan B. Anthony, within America, excuse me, Susan B. Anthony lobbying heavily for women's rights as well. So all of this, as we're seeing, is coming in. There's reforms, measures within pre-Civil War America clearly are present. They're making, they're gaining momentum. But all of these efforts collectively, even with Frederick Douglass's newspaper called the North Star, all of these efforts collectively will not be enough to put or to pop the increasing building tension between the North and the South. When we come back then in our next podcast, we are in a second on our first half of American history. In podcast 42, we are now in that podcast, we'll see America desperately grasping at straws to try to stave off the inevitable conclusion that America was most likely going to go down the drain of what we call civil war. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments which you might that you might have. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.